So I've supervised as the main advisor um, 115 dissertations. Today's episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing an economics legend in the economics of health, Dr. Michael Grossman. Mike is an emeritus professor of economics at City University of New York's Graduate Center, where he spent nearly his entire career studying the economics of health, as well as mentoring many future health economists. His influence on the field is difficult to overstate. One of the core economic models, for instance, of the demand for health is the Grossman uh, model. Uh, written under the supervision of Nobel laureate Gary Becker while he was a PhD student at Columbia University in the late 60s. He would go on to write countless peer-reviewed publications amounting somewhere between 30 and 40,000 citations over what by any measure has been an incredibly impactful career as an economist. This interview was though also personally meaningful for me as I've been a longtime admirer of the type of scientist and the type of economist that I would like to be. Mike embodies many elements that I admire. He is a uh, careful researcher, meticulous, thoughtful. Uh, he is a devoted teacher and mentor to students. He is also a community organizer. He ran the National Bureau of Economic Research Health Economics Group for decades, which served as a foundation for the distribution uh, and the creation of new and the promotion of new research. I so enjoyed our meeting that I decided I wanted to do a multi-part interview series with him so that I can better understand uh, these different parts of him as well as his career. This is part one of an open-ended series on Michael Grossman. I am Scott Cunningham, and this is Mixtape, the podcast. Okay, well, it's uh, uh, my pleasure to have uh, a chance to, to meet with one of... Uh, my my favorite uh, health economist or economist in general uh, in the profession, Michael Grossman. Uh, thanks so much for giving me some of your time to to talk. Well, thanks for asking me. Uh, so so I wanted, before we start talking about your career as an economist, I have some questions here. I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about growing up. Where did you grow up as a kid? All right, so I'm a native. New Yorker. And aside from the two years I worked at the University of Chicago and the four years I went to undergraduate college at Trinity College in Hartford, I've lived in New York all my life. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. And well, I actually lived in Fort Lee, New Jersey for, for about 18 years, but that's not very far from New York. And that isn't when I was a kid. So I was born in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. And I lived there for the first seven, eight years of my, seven years of my life. And then we moved to Queens and we moved to a part of Queens that's uh, a section called the Rockaways. The Rockaways is a peninsula and it's actually part of Long Island. Most mm -hmm. of Long Island is not part of New York City. But there's this 10-mile area called Rockaways, which is the tip western end of Long Island. 
So it's actually part of Long Island, which is obviously not a peninsula, it's an island. But this part of it is rounded on uh, two sides by the Atlantic Ocean, the third side by the Jamaica Bay. And then there is a part of it that is connected by land to the rest of Long Island, which is an island. Hmm. But right on the Atlantic Ocean, and you really ever know that you're in New York City when you're there because the houses is a, a second, and then there were all sections within this area. And I lived on the very tip, right, Western End, in a section called the Ponset, which is an old Indian name, and that is zoned for private houses. Okay. The houses don't have a lot of land, but they're all single family houses. And I live like about two blocks from the Atlantic Ocean. And I spent a lot of time on the beach when I was a kid. Hmm. And at that time, which was the 1950s, it wasn't that well known how bad the sun could be for you. Oh, gosh. of all the time I spent on the beach with a number of skin cancers. Oh, you have that now? You have some skin cancer now? Some of which have been serious. I don't have melanomas, but I have squamish and basal skin cancer. Okay. And actually, for a couple of summers, I worked in a playground, which was right off of the beach. Yeah, and, and other summers I just spend a lot of time like, ha- hanging out and going swimming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you end up at Trinity College? Do you not think about going to a school in New York City? Uh, well, <clears throat> I had the option. So New York City high schools had a policy there. So I went to a big New York City high school called Far Rockaway High School which is in the Rockaways, but it's in a different area in the Rockaways, about eight, nine miles from where I live. It's the other end of the Rockaways. Mm. And you could, you could, the guidance counselor would allow students to make applications to the three out-of-town colleges and only three, and then to a CUNY college. Um, oh, okay. So, so I did apply to Brooklyn College, which at that time was the best of the senior colleges within the UNY. It isn't anymore, but it was then, and it was all, and also was the nearest one to where I lived. And then, most of my my parents were middle class, and and. They had enough money to send kids. Um, I have two younger brothers, and we all went to colleges that were not in New York. And most of my f- friends did that also. Almost all did it. Um, but I was only limited to three applications. So I made one to Cornell and one to Dartmouth and one to uh, 
Trinity, which was my safe school. Mm. And, and at that time, it was, a, a, it was sort of at the bottom of the top 25 to 30 liberal arts colleges. And now it's probably not ranked as high as it was then. Um, and it, it was founded by the, by the, uh, by the Episcopalian Church. And I'm obviously not Episcopalian. I'm Jewish, uh, but it was mixed. There are about ten percent Jews. Uh, it was all men. Oh, it was when you were there. Is it still all men? No, no, no. It okay. went co-ed a long time ago. In fact, is a is a is a funny story about that. An interesting story, if you if you'd like to hear it. It pertains to a guy named Aji Ojan. You know Aji Ojan or Ralph him? I don't think I know. Aji Ojan, he's at the he's a Louisiana State University. He's an MBR research associate. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know I, him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. From uh, he's from Turkey. Yeah. So he, so, so he has a PhD from the. Graduate Center. Yeah, and wrote a dissertation for me, mm -hmm. and uh, and now his salary is about two times the salary I maxed out. <laughs> that's where maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's a lot more than I ever made. He's it. been so he's been so successful. He's yeah, so, so anyhow, so and he was a first year student. He gave me this theoretical paper about the economics of marriage. Oh. And, it, and it looked interesting. I It was just something he did on his own. Oh. And I said to him, Aji, this is a real interesting paper, but I'm an empirical economist and there's something hissing from it, his own empirical work. So after this, so during the second year, he gave me a revised version, which had a lot of interesting empirical work. Ah. And he wasn't married at the time. And I told him, you know, there's still something missing. Hey. So I told him that I would go out and search for what was missing. And then I met the first woman who I ever met who went, who, who had a PA from uh, Trinity. Uh -huh. She was a woman named Adeline Portichis. Portichis. I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. She was Italian from Hoboken. And uh -huh. she was with my wife. And she wasn't going with anybody either at the time. And Archie, um, who the owners of a small Turkish restaurant in a town in New Jersey called Cliffside Park. Uh -huh. And he had arranged the MBR New York office, which was small. Aji took over the whole restaurant and most of the people who worked in the office were, were going to go. And he had taught Turkish folk dancing in Turkey. And there was a band and he was going to teach everybody how to birth Turkish folk. 
So I asked him, I, I, uh, I told him that, that I had met Madeline. I really liked her. And I asked her him if I could invite her. And he said, yes. And they started to date and they got married. Yeah. So I found what was missing from the page. <laughs> and, that that was, and that was the and I was the best man at the review. Oh my god. Is that what is that is that what people expect now? This is this is like all your all the future students they were like if i work with dr grossman maybe he'll help me uh get get married and well that's not the only story like that <laughs> there was another guy who wrote a dissertation for me and my wife's mother when he was a student was working in a small women's uh clothing store uh-huh. and the manager of the store was a woman and she wasn't dating anybody so Eileen my wife and I made a party at our at our apartment for some of my friends some of her friends so this guy came and he's a guy whose name you couldn't Oh, because he didn't end up being an academic economist. So he came and the manager of the store came and they met and they got married. Mm. Uh, but they also got divorced ultimately, although they have two kids and they were married for a long time. Mm. So that's not the only show. And then it was a third couple. And again, you wouldn't owe either of these people because they haven't had a, a academic careers. I didn't introduce them to each other. They were both PhD candidates in economics at the uh, graduate center, but I hired both of them as research assistants. Uh, okay. And, this, and this, they added the bureau. The guy was two years um, ahead of the woman and they got married and I was also the best man at that point. Yeah. So <laughs> how many students have you had? How many doctor, yeah. how many dissertations have you advised? Oh, and so that's something I mean I I you know the publications don't mean as much to me as the number of dissertations that I, I've supervised. So I count those and I my I, I have noticed that about you. I have noticed for a long time. I, I have a theory about you, which is uh, you're a important part of, um, of uh, you are an example. You're like the best example of anybody I know uh, who is producing science along two margins. One is writing these very impactful papers. And then two, uh, well, actually three margins. One, the the publishing, but then two, the the mentoring uh, is just unbelievable how many people you have produced, you know, you've played a role in. And then related to that also, I also kind of feel like connected to that is you run in the NB, the National Bureau of Economic Research Health Economics Program for you know decades almost it's like you're this example of of the scientific 
model that people don't really always know about, which is through this production of people uh, who all and through the mentoring and also the platform of the of the group, the health group. Well, thank you. That's very nice. But there were a lot of there were there were some elements to that that uh, was sort of random luck. So the so the answer in terms of the number. So I've supervised as the main uh, as the advisor, the main advisor, um, 115 dissertations. Oh my gosh. Then I've served on another 180 now, 100 something, something almost around 180 committees as as a second or third reader. So mm. the rules at the graduate center is that each uh, dissertation has to have a supervisor, and then it has to have who at least two additional members who are uh, also members of the doctoral faculty in economics of CUNY. And then it could have more than that. It, and it could also have outside readers, people right. who want CUNY. But the reason I've done so many goes back to the time, the year that I was hired there. So I, I, uh, I taught at the UNY Graduate Center from 1972 through 2017. And the first two years I was a visitor and then I got a tenure track appointment. Okay. And the way the PhDs work at, at the at CUNY or the way at the faculty works is there are two types of faculty. There are central appointments who do all their teaching at the graduate center and that's where they have tenure. And then there are college-based faculty, people who teach at the senior colleges, Hunter City, Brooklyn, yeah. Queens, Peru. And they have tenure there and they do some and they and they're also on the doctoral faculty in economics. Some of them teach a course a year. Some of them teach a course a semester, but that's rare. They typically some will teach a course a year. Some will teach a course every other year. Some will do very little teaching, but will serve on dissertation committees. And some don't do anything. Right. But so, and I was hired. There, there had been a period of time in the 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 previous three years when there had been six central appointments, and five of them were in the labor human capital area. Mm -hmm. And these are these are, I think, are old enough to know most of these guys because they're pretty well known. Finest Welsh. Yeah. You know, Finest Welsh are out of yeah. them. Mm -hmm. He's um, a, yeah, he, uh, he uh, started Stata the, and, and uh, he started Stata and then right. uh, yeah, a lot of labor stuff. Yeah. So his, oh, he uh, passed away a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So Finest Welsh went there for three years. He actually hired and uh, uh, Bob. Willis, you know, 
Bob Willis. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't thought of him in a long time. Yeah. yeah but he was there for three years. Tim Smith, you know, Tim Smith. No, I him. And he's a, see, someday that's what people are going to say. You know, somebody's going to mention my name and they're going to say, who the hell is the, you all. He's a Chicago PhD who spent who spent most of his career at the Rand Corporation. Oh, okay. Okay. And he did a lot of work with the health and retirement survey now. So he was a Abraham to start off with. He wrote dissertation. Uh he's a couple of years uh, younger than me. He left Rand, but fairly recently. So, and he was a guy who really didn't like teaching that much. So he spent his whole career at Rand. Mm. Uh, and so he was there for three years. Uh, Bill Landis. Yeah. He's the founding editor of the Journal of Foreign Economics. Yeah. He was there for three years. Okay. And the first guy was a guy named Melvin Rader, who was him. You don't know him. Yeah, well, he was one of the first, he was one of the first economists who took labor economics seriously. Mm. And he taught at Stanford for a long time. And then I, I guess his kids were out of the house and he and his wife decided that they'd like to live in New York. So he spent three years at the grad center. Um, and uh, so there were those five guys and they all had central appointments. So the thing that the, the economics program was dominated by labor, human capital, human resources. All these guys were MBR Research Associates. Yeah. At that time, the NBR had a single office. There was Oak Cambridge office. They had a single office on Addison Avenue, 39th Street. Uh-huh. And the Graduate Center at that time had an, had an office on, uh, was in an old office building that was on 42nd Street between Fifth Avenue and Sixth Avenue. So they were very near each other. And Victor Fuchs yeah. was there. He was there. Now he had a joint appointment. He was at the Graduate Center and the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, mm-hmm. which at that time was part of CUNY. Now it isn't. Um, so 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 he was there, and then there were the and then Harry Kiswick, who's the yeah. president. So he was not he wasn't a central appointment, but he was he was teaching at Queens College, mm. and, he, and and he was on the doctoral faculty in economics, and he it was some teaching there as well. All these guys taught there for three years. Three years. And that's all. And, that's all. and huh. they, well, Victor, Victor actually, he might have, yeah, Victor actually taught there a little bit more than, the, yeah, more than three years. But they all left in the fall of 1974 
and that's and I started to teach there on a tenure track line. Mm. And there was a situation where students had taken courses with these people, uh -huh. and their and their aim was to do dissertations with them, and some of them had actually started dissertations. Mm. And they all left. But they're all leaving. They're all temporary. So yeah. no, they, they, but they weren't really temporary. They were. These guys had were uh, were tenured. They were tenured. Uh, well, Smith might not have been tenured, and Willis might not have been tenured because they were very young. But they were on tenured lines. Got the it. other people were tenured. Mm. And they and they were there for three years, and they all got out of office. And the other reason they left was the NBER in the fall of nineteen. So well, yeah, just in the fall of nineteen seventy four, opened the second office. And this is not I don't know how well known this is, but they 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 opened up this office on the Stanford campus. So. Yeah, so up until 2008, the NBR had an office in Stanford. Okay. Right, huh? on the Stanford, right on the Stanford campus. That AB is not all that well known. It's certainly well known among people my age. And, huh? that's, and that's why Victor left. Oh, that's why he left. Yeah, and the story about that is. Some anonymous donor had given Stanford money with the yeah. with the uh, purpose of building an office for the bureau, mm. but they didn't want to do it until they got people to commit to go. Mm -hmm. So Victor was a native New Yorker. He had spent all his life in New York, um, and uh, and. In the academic year 1972-73, he, he had a fellowship at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And so he lived in California and he decided that he really liked California. Yeah. So, so oh, so, so it, it was... The opposite of if they build it. So yeah, it was. So if they build it, he will come. So yeah. they build it. So he made a commitment to, to go. Yeah. And oh, he was at the bureau and he was at Stanford and he had a joint appointment. He, he still does. He's actually still alive. He's 98. Mm. Uh, and he's still working. Wow. Uh, how old is it, Victor Fuchs? Ninety-eight. He's ninety-eight years old. Yes. Wow. Ninety-eight years old. Hey, so, so th this is funny. When I was in graduate school, I remember this paper uh, coming out, and I don't remember where it was now, though. But it, it's like the the paper came out, and it was like this Mike Grossman versus Victor Fuchs on. Uh, whether or not the health capital models predictions about schooling's effect on health 
was causal or selection. And it was like the, the model claimed it was causal and Victor had always been very skeptical and thought it was selection. I was curious, like, can you tell me a little bit about that back, background? Yeah, well, it was, he, he had this, um, his argument was that it was that the real, real thing that was causing both health and schooling was time preference. Mm. That, oh, it was like a third variable argument that people who decide to get more schooling either for themselves or their kids and also decide to get to do things to get at a health for themselves and or for their kids yeah. are more future oriented. Yeah. And that was the, the that was the third variable. And he had a couple of papers that tried to show that. But that's that's really where that's really where that with is a whole stack of research on yeah. it. And people, some people make that argument. Some people that argue that the causality goes in the other direction, that that, uh, that healthier people have longer lives. And for that reason, they have more incentives to invest in their own schooling mm. or or people who are uh, healthier when they're young are sort of at or out of schooling. They don't miss as many days of school. They just pedal learning, and they end up with more with more schooling. Yeah, and and that 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 hypothesis or that issue of whether schooling really causes health uh, has got, has really generated an awful lot of research uh-huh. in, in uh, health economics. Yeah. And there are there are weird, there are papers every year. Some of them try to hold constant as many third variables as they can. So some of them actually do IV models, and I'm sure you've seen these papers where they yeah. use compulsory school reform as an uh, as an um, instrument uh, for uh, for schooling. Um, I like to and oh, and there's there are like there are there are papers every year on this. I like I like to say that in some years. Uh, the number of papers that support my argument that there uh-huh. really is a causal effect, and maybe a sort of like my adding average in the Northeast uh, Veterans of Foreign War uh, competition in yeah. uh, 1955, I think, where my and my adding average was 500 means I got a hit so I oh I was up two times and I did at a hit um other years the um the 
percentage of papers that support causality is much more like my padding average during the regular season, which was 154. <laughs> so sometimes I win a lot, sometimes I don't. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but that really was the origins. Oh, oh, his, he was the, really the first person, I think, to really raise the issue of whether it really was a causal effect. Uh-huh. And I took it seriously, and so mm-hmm. did a lot of other people. Although he actually, even way before that, and then after I, after I finished my dissertation, so, so I think I'm through, I mean, you know, uh, Eileen's not here. He always says I really talked too much, and I had no. to get to the point. But the point of why I've done all this, all this dissertation supervision really goes back to the app. To after I, after I was hired at the center, there really weren't ever more than three central appointments in in almost all the years that I there. So I not only was on health dissertations, but I was on labor dissertations. I was actually a second second or third reader on dissertations in macroeconomics. And the the last macroeconomics course I took was when I was in under... was when I was an undergraduate because, and I was a PhD candidate at Columbia. It was possible to get a PhD in economics without taking any macroeconomics, which is exactly what I did. But, <laughs> but that's a lot of economists' dream. A lot of yeah, that's a microeconomist uh, yeah. utopia for some people. So that was a reality, and now it's not like that anymore. But, no. but in my time, it was a so that so sometimes you know it was really hard to get people to serve on dissertation committees, and I did teach with a real good macroeconomist who you probably wouldn't know. His name was Salim Efsi, and he was from Turkey. He was a he was a, a student of Sims and Sargent when they both taught in Minnesota, and he was a very very good time series macroeconometrician who also got interested in finance and later in, in later stages. Uh, he wasn't those, was not as old as me and passed away and he was only about 62. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he toured with me at the Santa and I would sign the pieces of paper for his macro and finance dissertations that they were all right. And he would sign them my health economics <laughs> and uh, but he actually uh, he was actually to give sensible comments because he was in econometrics every oh. once in a while i made a sensible comment on a macro dissertation but i think it was fairly rare <laughs> so 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 that's why i was um I, I particularly why I was a second or third reader on on um, a lot of dissertations that were not in health. Right. Uh, so that's my story about supervising dissertation. And I do get a lot. I mean, 
I, I actually still do, do it. Uh, CUNY rules prohibit emeritus faculty from supervising dissertations. And they wouldn't pay me if I did, if I, if the rules allowed it, but they, but they do allow them to serve on committees. Uh, so I still do that. I see. Uh, I still do that. And yeah. I, I mean, you're a true, you're a true, uh, uh, men, you're you're a true uh, you're the full package for an economist. I mean, just in terms of the teaching and the mentorship and the and the um, the, the the scientific personal output and and then the you know the 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 running of these the running of these uh, this workshop at MBER. I, I want to talk about about all of it, uh, but I don't want to lose thread on Columbia. And yeah. so I was I was wanting to know a little bit about um, that time there, because in some ways, I, I you know, I know, you're such a humble person and you're not going to like me saying this, but I think you're probably like Becker's most accomplished uh, economist. I mean, to a lot of a lot of people that, you know, it's just the 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 the, the work that you had in in health uh it's just you know it's just hard to find someone else that came out of that that becker worldview that 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 just was so impactful and i don't mean that to kind of downplay uh your own creative work but you know it's just just the the connection with dr becker is just so interesting and i was just kind of curious what it was like being there with him and and what you learned from him all right well well so let me tell you the, the, the easiest way to, talk, to answer that is to talk about the, the history of how I started to work on the demand for health. Mm. Because that really sums it all up. And it also highlights that what you said about me is not really right. But... Uh, let me tell you the story. Well, the story. So the story is so it's June of 1966. And I had finished my first two years at Columbia. And I had passed all the exams. Uh, and I didn't have a dissertation topic. And I was thinking of getting married. Mm -hmm. And at that time, there were full-time people at the MBR and out there aren't any, but there were then. Victor was full-time. Okay. Ecker was a research associate, but he taught at Columbia. Jacob Minster, who also was very instrumental in the dissertation and the labor economics work that Becker was doing at Columbia. I'm not gonna answer that. Um, he, uh, uh, he was also a research associate. Should I just turn it off? Yeah, we can pause it real quick and then, and then you could go do that. Okay. All right, so, 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 
So anyhow, Victor was looking for a research assistant and Hacker recommended me to him and he hired me. And, and you know, I really was looking for some income for the summer. Um, and at that, and he was doing a book on the service sector of the U.S. economy, and and that's how he got interested in healthy in uh, health and health economics. Victor, because at that time health still was a was a was a fairly big part of the economy. So. So I worked on that book for him for the part of it for the summer. And at the end of the summer, he makes me this offer that if I did a dissertation in health economics, mm. I could stay at the bureau, work for him half time and have space to do my uh, office space uh, to work on my dissertation the other half of the time. And at the time, at that time, I didn't know anything about health economics. There mm. were no courses in health economics at Columbia. There were hardly any courses anywhere in health economics. Um, so it was a very, very field that really wasn't even a field. There were no ads for health economists that I ever saw at that time. Yeah. And so, so I decided to, to take his offers. Oh, so I started to work for him in June. Eileen and I got married in September. And that's why I always like to say that I have two wives and I've been married to each of them for 56 years <laughs> or almost 56 um, 56 for Eileen in September uh -huh. um, um, so 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 then the issue was that I did that I that, that I really wanted to write a dissertation for Gary but I didn't have a topic and I went to him and talked to him and he was not doing work at health and now in health at that time. So he wasn't sure that he was going to supervise me. Mm. So I was still looking around for a topic and reading stuff in health. Um, and then he had, he was it was a paper that had done, uh, had been done by Irving Levison, Richard Ouster, and Everest Sarachek. Irv was uh, Vic's main research assistant at the NBR at the time, and he was also a PhD candidate at Columbia. Um, and he was doing a dissertation from Enser. He had actually started his dissertation. He was a couple years ahead of me. And he was doing a dissertation dealing with the self-employed. And it was, a, I don't exactly remember what it was, but it was dealing with self-employment. Mm. 
and Victor, and he worked for Victor uh, all time. Alfred was a PhD candidate at MIT, and he was um, he was he was an native New Yorker, and he was around the bureau maybe just as a visiting student. I don't remember exactly whether he worked for Victor or not. He certainly interacted with them. Um, Ever Saratek was not a PhD candidate anywhere. She had a master's and she worked for Victor full time. And um, Victor had on a paper, this great unpublished paper, and it really is a great paper, dealing with some of the determinants of variations in uh, or in mortality rates among states of the U.S. And this is now, the, he, he actually finished the paper in 1965. So it's way before there were the there were time series of state or sections. So, so we had basically a single cross-section and he found some interesting effects. He found a, a negative effect of education on mortality. He actually found a positive effect of income on mortality, which was mm. kind of puzzling. And then he had some health inputs, the number of physicians per capita and, and things like that. And it, it really had some interesting empirical findings, but he didn't want to publish it because he was concerned about the reverse causality, not income and health so much as the inputs, the, the medical care inputs and health incomes that MDs might okay in areas where health is maybe better, might be worse to start off with. So there's a, oh, there's a real causality issue. Yeah, but 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 Irvin his two colleagues picked that up and they did a paper where they treated the the inputs as an the, as endogenous. So it was a two stage squares paper, mm -hmm. and they wanted to issue it as an NDO working paper and and it was and it was not the current NBO working paper series. That didn't start until around 1971 or 72. Hmm. These were papers that staff wanted to either try to publish in journals or submit them maybe to books as book chapters or put it because um, or, or do something like that. And these papers had to be okayed by your reading committee of NBR Research Associates. So Echo was on the reading committee. So he reads this paper and he was concerned about the lack of a theoretical framework and that 
it really didn't this thing it really just oh that's when he was oh and he said health should be treated as an object that enters the utility function of consumers becker says that yeah he says that and he also says that at, at health does not only depend on medical care there's so is a whole production function with a lot of inputs in it. And that's right after, so he publishes paper on the purity allocation at time in yeah. 1964. And mm -hmm. that had this household production function model in it that consumers actually reduced their objects of uh, choice. Uh, with inputs, medical care, their own time, diet, exercise. So he said that. So, oh, so that really concerned him. So he gave me that report and said there are. This is an idea for a dissertation, and um, and um, and. Uh, Oh, he had a production function. He put education into the production function. So the original, his, his original proposal was to focus on the effects of education on health. But as I started to work on it, he sort of, he sort of suggested, some people say that's what he did. Some people said that he that he uh, probably demanded to make it into a real to really have a theoretical framework um, and to really develop it in more detail. So it was his idea to view health as an object of choice in the utility function and to use the uh, aspects of the household production function model. But, but then he also said health is a, health is a form of human capital. Yeah. He is focused on knowledge, on, on knowledge, but I like to call it knowledge capital, but what is commonly referred to as education. He also had done stuff on on-the-job uh, Training. Can you just real quick tell me uh, what Gary Becker when he when he said for people that are listening when people hear human capital uh, it might not they may not immediately see what you know college education and health would have to do with each other it it's it has to do with uh, it, it has to do with how he thinks about that phrase right what what does he mean by that well well by well. He, he meant that both of them are determinants of, of earnings. Right. And, but, but he also, but he also, you know, suggested making a, making a distinction that, at, that, at, 
and education on college capital affects a person's wage rate, affects right. his market productivity. Health also might do that, but in the fundamental, but it does something that's more fundamental. It basically has an impact on the amount of time a person has to allocate the market work and also to on market activities. And it, right. and, and it has an impact on the, the amount of time a person is going to live. Yeah. So, so the distinction that I emphasize, but that he suggested, was that health can be viewed, health is a part of human capital, but it differs from knowledge capital in the sense that knowledge capital impacts wage, health capital impacts available time, length of life. So that was his distinction. So he can to say that I, you know, get and 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 see the thing where I got here, I was really lucky and where I got more recognition than I thought I deserved was at the time that I did that work and at, uh, and at the time that my NBR monograph was published in 1972 and my paper in the Journal of Political Economy was published the same year. He hadn't, he had now worked in health so it looked like all of it was due to me, and it really was not. Part of it was due to Victor, who really urged me to work in health to start off with. And the other, and the other part of it, and more of it, was due to Gary, because they were they really were his ideas, mm-hmm. and I and I carried them out. And so other people who wrote dissertations for him, you know, maybe I, you know, didn't get as much recognition as I got because I was doing something at at least at face value looked somewhat different from the type of work that um, that, um, that that he was doing that he was doing, and you know, and. Let me give you an example and give some recognition to a guy who I, I thought who was I thought the best student in my cohort, and it's a guy you probably would, would not have heard of. His name was Gilbert Kez. Ghez, yeah. So he 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 wrote it. Dissertation on the theory which, which dealt with the theory of the allocation of goods and time over the life cycle. Mm. And he and Carrie published an NBR book on that topic in around 1975 or so. And, so, and, and it's a very good book. It's, um, it's on the Bureau website. I'll give you the site. I'll give you the reference to it. 
and Till's first job was at the University of Chicago. In fact, he and I and Isaac Ehrlich. Yeah. You know of Isaac Ehrlich? Yeah. yeah. So he all started at the University of Chicago in the fall of 1969. Hill was in the economics department. Isaac was in the business school. Mm. So they had a tenure-track appointment and Hill had and I, and I had this non-tenure-track appointment at the Center for Health Administration Studies as a research associate. And at that time, the center was part of the business school. And now it's part of the School of Social Work. Oh, um, yeah. And, uh, or Social Welfare. I don't know. Something. Yeah, that's where Harold Pollack is, I yeah, think. Yeah, 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 that's right. But then it was part of the business school. And in fact, then at that time, Chicago offered an MBA in hospital administration. Mm. And they don't offer that any anymore. So when Humber people at the center taught in the business school in this MBA. And the second year I was there, I did some teaching in the business school, but I, I just taught a microeconomics course for MBA students. So Till had the best appointment and Till came up with the the topic for his dissertation in the, um, independently of Carrie. Oh. And the reason that they published together is Carrie was focusing on the allocation of time over a life cycle, whereas Hill was focusing on the allocation of, of uh, goods over a life cycle. And the main argument was that is that as age is that the typical age pattern is the ages would rise over the working life and then maybe start to fall at the end. But in, but in periods when age rates were relatively high, people would substitute goods for time in the production of household commodities. Mm. So that was the basic idea and they did test it out um, and they decided to publish together because they because Hill's work was so related to Gary's work but he came up Hill came up with that topic on his own and he really mm. never got the recognition that he deserved mm. and his and his issue and the reason why you probably don't know his name is that he was a very critical person mm. And he was self-critical. And for oh. that reason, he had a lot of difficulty publishing. He, I see. So he never published all that much. He did publish uh, his book, and he had a couple of other things. But he didn't get tenure at Chicago. And he spent all of his career living in Chicago. He taught at the... University of Illinois, Chicago, and oh. at Roosevelt University in Chicago. I see. And, he, and he was a couple of years older than me, um, but he passed away 
he was he was like he passed away maybe about five years ago. Okay. His daughter on uh, on Drea Gez won the Nobel Prize in physics about two years ago. What did? His oldest daughter won the Nobel Prize in physics. Oh, wow. Two years ago. She teaches at the University of California, Los Angeles. And I obviously knew her. And uh, I, I I sent her a message. No, I, I congratulated her. And I then, Hill had passed away, and I, and I told her that I know he would have been so proud of you. Yeah. She said that he really emphasized to her the, the importance of mathematics. Huh. Yeah. He had three daughters. Um, huh. So, Andrea went to MIT, and his and his. Middle daughter went to Harvard, and his youngest daughter went to MIT. Uh, so they tell you how smart they sound amazing. They yeah. sound amazing. And it, yeah, oh, that's uh, that's that's, that's neat. Yeah. Do, do, Mike, I uh, was wondering, you know, what if we were to do a uh, a series of interviews where we could just I could learn more about you doing these kinds of podcasts and it would be like you know the this this might be something that we could do again sure that's okay hey with me because I guess I talked too much about no you didn't you didn't at all you I I uh have so much I just want to keep doing it um the I think it would be uh, a lot of, I think it would be a lot of fun to, to learn all, all, as much about, there's just so much about the, the history of health and your time with uh, Gary Becker, but, but also just even want to talk at length about NBER. I, I, I had sort of bracketed off that I thought that would be something fun and maybe it would be something we could do just sort of a small little series on, on you. Sure, that, that's all right. I think, you know, things like this make me a little uncomfortable because I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm just uncomfortable. And it's not because of my speech, it's because I, you know, I, I first rule of research is bad publicity is better than all publicity. My second rule is ever take yourself too seriously. Yeah. And my, and, and my third one maybe is a little bit more serious in that it's sort of better to be the first to one of the first, even if you're wrong. But I'm not a publicity hound. And I felt- of course, no. I, you know, you're so, you're so, uh, you're, you're, you're such a humble man and so just unbelievably friendly and social socially supportive of other economists but but I so I don't I know I I, I know that I can tell that you don't want to promote yourself and I'm not meaning it like that but I also kind of think you're 
sort of a uh, special, you know, you sort of have, a, you, you have the ability to tell parts of the story of, of microeconomics, the latter part of 20th century microeconomics in the United States that I actually kind of think is, is people would find really useful. And a lot of, a lot of students, I think also just would, would love to learn more about how the field, you know, just kind of what, what you saw the field changing, what your, what your part of it was. And, um, I also just think it would be, it would be just a lot of fun to hear your story. Um, you know, just every, if, it, if it's something we could continue to do. Sure. That's okay. Yeah. That's fine with me. There, yeah. There are things that I think that you did want to ask me that you didn't have time to because yeah. of too much. And I got no, 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 we, this was, we talked about exactly what we were supposed to talk about. So, uh, well, well, let me uh, let me wrap this up. Thank you so much, uh, and uh, I'll, I'll appreciate you giving me your time. Sure. Okay, Scott.